1: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today.
0: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, we're talking about Little Fires Everywhere, the second novel from Celeste Ng, and then Love and Fame, the latest novel from Susie Boyd. Celeste Ng grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Shaker Heights, Ohio. She attended Harvard University and earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, won the Hopwood Award, the Massachusetts Book Award, the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature, and the American Library Association's Alex Award, and went on to sell over a million copies. She's a 2016 National Endowment for the Arts Fellow, and Celeste's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Little Fires Everywhere. Celeste, welcome back to Little Atoms.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
0: Describe Little Fires Everywhere for us. What's it about?
1: Uh, well, it takes place in my actual hometown, Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. And um, Shaker Heights was a early planned community. It was founded around the um, turn of the 20th century, and it's beautiful. It's uh, very progressive. It's very liberal. I had a wonderful time growing up there. It's very racially diverse. But the flip side of all of that planning is that there's a sort of focus on rules. Uh, There's a a way that things are done in Shaker Heights, and that can be a little bit uh, constraining if you're not used to those rules. And so uh, the novel focuses on two families, the Richardsons, who have lived there for a long time, you know, several generations, and the Warrens. It's a single mother, Mia, and her daughter um, who moved to town and and rent a house from the Richardsons and the two families sort of become intertangled the Richardsons have got four teenagers and Mia has a teenage daughter and as the families sort of become entangled with one another um, they start to overturn each other's secrets a little bit and um, when the town is sort of split by this custody battle over a, a Chinese American baby who's getting adopted by a white family these two families find themselves on opposite sides and that's when the uh, all of the, the sparks fly so to speak
0: and beyond your familiarity with it Why was Shaker Heights a perfect setting for this novel?
1: Well, I was really interested in the community and sort of the mentality of the community. I I was at that stage in my life, I think, where I'd been away from home for about a decade, and I was starting to look back on my adolescence there with sort of a clearer perspective. And I realized that a lot of the things that I thought were common and typical, you know, oh, isn't everyone like that, were actually not common or typical at all. You know, one being that we were so uh, race conscious in a lot of ways that, you know, we had a race relations group at the high school and um, they would go back and they would talk to the students in the elementary school and talk with them about what is prejudice and how do we how do we try and overcome discrimination all those things I didn't realize that that wasn't common um until i you know had been away from home for a while and everyone I met found that extraordinary and at the same time I also started to look back on some of the little rules of the community like there are rules about where you can put your garbage what color you can paint things or you know where you're allowed to you know how often you have to mow your lawn and things like that um, and I realized that those were actually a little unusual as as well. And so that kind of contrast between that sort of progressive inclusiveness and then that kind of like real being a stickler about the rules.
0: So you said you had those sort of like raise awareness classes and courses and things and in the book a lot of that stuff comes off as like ironic in that it's obviously the rich white characters that are saying oh you know we don't see race and things like that and you know mrs richardson whenever i don't know if it's every time but i noticed a few times she goes out to lunch and she'll have like chicken tikka masala which is like some ersatz indian meal and it comes across as like a bit only their extreme white privilege allows them to say i don't see race
1: yeah I think that that's true the only people I think who who get to say that are the people who are white and privileged generally speaking um i don't I don't think I've ever heard a of- person of color say that sincerely. That was one of the things that I wanted to try and, you know, explore in the novel. Um, I never go into the book with sort of an agenda, but I did want to look at the ways in which sort of like white liberalism a lot of times I think still has its blind spots because what comes with privilege is not having to notice a lot of things that other people are sort of forced to deal with every day. And I think that it's it's really well-intentioned in Shaker Heights and in the world of the novel um that people really sincerely mean to be doing well. And the problem with a blind spot, of course, is you don't know you have it because that's exactly what a blind spot is, right? And so in the novel, yeah, the the main characters, um you know, most of whom are White the Richardsons, are on the one hand saying that they believe in you know, certain things and yet are completely unaware of the ways in which they're sort of perpetuating those same kinds of systems or in which they're sort of making the same mistakes that they're criticizing other people for. Um again, I feel like that's something that we're, we're starting to become aware of over here in the States that, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, people will will say one thing and then when it comes close to home, they don't necessarily um, walk the walk, so to speak.
0: And I think I enjoy how this is like widening out the themes from Everything I Never Told You, because in in that book, the family, you know, you've got James who comes from an immigrant background and he's desperate to fit in and be accepted. And this is a family that are the only Chinese American family in, you know, in that small town. Whereas in this book, we're in this liberal utopia.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I wanted to look at some of those same themes um, because they're themes that I think about a lot in my life and in in art and in my reading and just in all kinds of ways. Um, they just, you know, that's what I keep coming back to. That's become one of the through lines is sort of these questions of how the races understand each other or don't. And I wanted to look at them sort of in the opposite direction. Everything I never told you was really sort of a from the inside out, so to speak. You know, most of the characters in the book are people of color, and the book is really sort of contained to this one family. It's this almost sort of claustrophobic. It mostly takes place in the house. And um, we're looking at it sort of from their perspective, looking outwards. And in this book, I wanted to try and look at that from the opposite direction, sort of from the outside looking in, So to look at sort of how the white characters might be viewing or not viewing the experiences of, you know, Bibi, for example, who is the Chinese American woman who abandons her baby and then wants to get it back.
0: (laughs) Well. I want to look at some of the characters and there's a there's a large cast of characters a larger cast of characters in this book although well, I think it's fair to say that the, the central characters are Eleanor Richardson, Mrs. Richardson and Mia, Mia Warren before we talk about the two characters themselves I noticed that throughout the book although obviously her name's Eleanor I can't even actually remember her husband's name but the Richardsons are referred to as Mrs. and Mr. Richardson throughout the book and I wondered why
1: yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't even realize I was doing that in the early days of the book. I, you know, wrote these pages and um, that was sort of how they came out. And, you know, Mia, of course, is always Mia. She's got a last name. She's Mia Warren, but she's never Ms. Warren, right? She's always Mia. And Mrs. Richardson was always Mrs. Richardson. And at a certain point, you know, my first readers, my writing group and my agent and my editor, they said, you know, she's she's got to have a first name. You know, why, why is she always Mrs. Richardson? And I, I thought about it a bit and I realized that that says something about her her character you know that says something about how she views herself and the distance that she wants to create between herself and other people even the reader i remember as a teenager there were parents who, who when you came into their house they'd say oh you know call me by my first name and then there were the parents who were quite happy to be mr and mrs so and so you know and that's a different kind of relationship and for mrs richardson i think she's her conception of herself and her status as being, you know, maybe slightly above everybody else, just, you know, needs to be respected and all of that, is so deeply ingrained that it felt almost wrong to call her anything other than Mrs. Richardson most of the time. And I wanted the reader to have that sense of distance too.
0: So tell us something about her. Who is she?
1: She's a uh, journalist. She writes for the local paper, the smaller of the two local papers, um, the sort of very neighborhoody, um, very local news one. She's grown up in Shaker Heights, this community, all her life. Her mother was born there and grew up there. Her grandparents, one of the first wave of people who moved there uh, when the community was founded. She's fairly well-to-do. Her husband, uh, Bill Richardson, is a lawyer. And, um, you know, they've got a, a very big house. They've got four teenagers who are all close in age. And um, she's kind of where she'd like to think that she's kind of got it all together. You know, she's she's had this plan for her life and, you know, go to school, get this job, get married, get this house, have these children. And she thinks she's kind of got it all. And um, it's only when the Warrens, Mia Warren, uh, the single mom and her daughter Pearl come into town and they start to get to know each other that she starts to question whether there are things that she might have missed out on in her life.
0: And indeed, Mia sort of brings out these things. If she, Eleanor starts to wonder if there was another path that she could have taken. Or certainly, you know, in her younger days when she was an activist at college and things, she's obviously, you know, settled down into this sort of bourgeois life as well. And of course, you've also got Izzy, her youngest daughter, who we can also see a sort of reflection of Eleanor's younger self. And both Mia and Izzy are basically, she's antagonistic to both of them.
1: Yeah, she's she's. I think she's a little threatened by them in a lot of ways because um they do remind her of her younger self. Um, you know, I think like many people, she was sort of more um, active and a little bit more fearless when she was a teenager, when she was in college. So for Mrs. Richardson, that was in the you know the '60s and the '70s, which is you know when the Vietnam War was going on. There's a you know a lot of people became very active, and she's now settled down into this sort of middle class life. And to see both her youngest daughter, who she's always sort of Heads with, and then this other mother come in who have has a very different lifestyle, right? She's almost the complete opposite of Elena in a lot of ways. She, um, you know, she moves around a lot as opposed to you know having these deep roots in the community. She's a single mom instead of being the sort of matriarch of the family. She's an artist rather than being sort of a you know upstanding you know serious stable profession. Um, and they're very different personalities. I think that's threatening to her, uh, to Mrs. Richardson, because they remind her of what she could have been, and then they also in some ways force her to um kind of justify her own decisions to herself to say well I didn't really want that you know what I have is much better and I'm starting to reach the age myself at which you know I'm realizing that Certain paths that I dreamed of when I was a kid are close to me. I'm probably not going to get to move to Europe and, you know, and live in Europe for, you know, for years because um, now I'm settled and I have a job and I have a small child. And, you know, all those, you know, I have a mortgage, all those things that come with adult life, in quotes. And so, you know, you have to kind of reckon with the fact that those paths are gone. And I think that's the sort of moment that Mrs. Richardson finds herself in when this, you know, this other mother comes into town.
0: As well as there being issues of of race in the book, which we'll pick up as we go on, there's also class issues here. Mia and Pearl are obviously poorer than the Richardsons, and they become her tenants, and they're living this sort of like vaguely itinerant lifestyle. And Mia is there's these two main characters, but I think Mia is the you know, the more sympathetic of the two because a lot of the events that are set in place are done by Eleanor, you know, she becomes upset with the situation and wants to sort of like dig into Mia's life. But at the same time, I don't really know how to describe this, but Mia also has there's a sort of privilege in the freedom that she's given herself by choosing to live this lifestyle like she's taking work but all of that is sort of subservient to her idea of herself as an artist and without giving anything away about what happens in the book there's a number of major plot points that happen a couple of things happen that Mia basically blithely sets in motion
1: yeah she's I think that's exactly right that she's got her own privilege it's not as immediately obvious as with Mrs Richardson because Mrs Richardson has you know the house and the BMW and all those things but Mia has some safety nets for herself and she always has the sense and I think the reader gets the sense that she chooses to live in this sort of itinerant sort of bohemian lifestyle right she she chooses that they're only going to take with them what they can fit into their Volkswagen and you know she chooses to only take on as much work as she needs to sort of put food on the table um, there's a moment in which one of the teenagers says to Mia's daughter you know well why doesn't why doesn't your mom get a real job or you know get a get more hours than she could you you could have you know you could have better furniture you could have a tv and there's a sense that mia is making this choice to not have those things um which is itself a kind of a kind of privilege yeah for sure
0: and of course as i said without giving too much away we get reasons why that might be as we go through the book there isn't it isn't necessarily that much of a choice that she's living that lifestyle Tell us something about Mia's art. She went to art college in the in New York. She studied under a a sort of famous Cindy Sherman esque photographer, portrait photographer. But Mia's art is different in that she she manipulates the image. She's like presenting something that's not straightforward as photography
1: exactly I mean I think if we asked her she might not call herself a photographer per se because she she has sort of her fingerprints all over the image so she sometimes for example will take a photograph and then doctor it after the fact that maybe she'll add to it or embellish it or deface it in some way or she'll cut it up and collage it or she'll sort of set up a very carefully framed sort of scenario and then take the picture of it so that what you're seeing is sort of very artificially staged and um, all of her art actually sort of has to do with the idea of sort of repurposing or reinvention or um, reimagining things, almost sort of reincarnation. There's um, a series of photos it describes in which she takes um, stuffed animals like teddy bears and she um, washes them and she cleans their, their filling and then she kind of restuffs them inside out and so the animal sort of looks as if it's been reborn in a, in an older form. And I think that's a lot of the theme of her art. Um, and it has a lot to do with her personality, this idea of, you know, can you change something into something else? You know, to how far can you bend an image or change things and still have it be the, the object that it actually is? You know, how far can you distort something before people can't see what it is? <laughs>
0: to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Celeste Ng and we're talking about her book Little Fires Everywhere. And Celeste, I wanted to spend some time talking about the narrative voice in the book. And it's a third person narration. So you're... Choosing to sort of relay the events to us from the outside, but also this allows you to give multiple perspectives. We see the story from a number of the characters' perspective. This is also what you did in the previous book. And what I particularly personally really like about this as well, a thing you do in both books, is you sort of stand outside time in terms of the narrative as well. So you can give us glimpses of what's going to happen in the future as well.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because that was um, one of the reasons that I I sort of found myself drawn to this voice. As a reader, I find those moments in other people's books really satisfying where you just get a little glimpse of where the characters are going to go or you just get a little bit of backstory fed to you right at the moment that you need it for context. Uh, There's something really reassuring for me um, and very pleasurable and sort of being allowed to sit back and have a story be told to you in that sort of very narratorly way, if that's a word. Um, but the idea that, you know, there's there's somebody who's very carefully framing this story for you and is going to give you all of the pieces that you need at the moments that you need them, and that you can kind of sit back and relax. It allowed me, I think, to both go into the, all of the sort of viewpoints of all of these characters, and even some minor ones in, in Little Fires Everywhere. There are a bunch of very minor characters who'll get just a, a little bit Of airtime. Um, But it also allowed me, I think, in some ways to comment on what maybe we as readers can see over those characters' shoulders. You know, since this is, for me, a, a book about blind spots and about the things that people can't see in themselves, it was really helpful to have this sort of outside perspective that could point out some of the things that the characters maybe had overlooked.
0: We haven't mentioned yet when the book is set. Now, um, Everything I Never Told You was set in the 1970s. Little Fires Everywhere is set in the 1990s. Now, I'm aware that that is obviously the time that you yourself was living in, in Shaker Heights, but at the same time now, we're in this position in history where literature and film have to be set in this sort of pre- the internet, pre-mobile phones world, don't
1: they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that was one of the things that drew me to it. I mean, partly it's, a you know, it was Nostalgia pulling me back. I, I would have been in high school at the same time as the Richardson children. But partly it was also that I wanted the characters to be able to to have some of their secrets. I mean, obviously we can still have secrets now, but it's much easier to find out things about people. You, know, you go on Google, you check their Facebook page, you know, you look at their Twitter feed. You know, you can scour around and you can find out a lot about them. And even if you have no social media presence. There are all these websites that aggregate sort of publicly available data. And so if you go on there, you can, with just a very little bit of digging, you can find people's you know previous six addresses and their place of employment and you know whatever is in the public record, people who are related to them. And I wanted the characters to have to work a little bit harder to find that. I wanted there to still be these sort of shadows where the characters could conceal some of the things in their past. And that's that's part of the story. So that was definitely part of it. You know, I wanted I didn't want someone to be able to, you know, just check the GPS in someone's cell phone and figure out where they were or where they were headed. But I also I think we're just a little just far enough away from the 90s now that we can kind of look back on it with a little distance. And, you know, we can see both how far we've come and how far we haven't come. So, for example, you know, I remember in the 90s that one of the ways you expressed your racial awareness was to say things like, I don't see race, right, as, as a number of the characters do. And comparing that to where we are now is, is quite interesting. And then likewise, that in the 90s, I, I think there was this sense of optimism, at least in the late 90s. You know, the economy was doing really well. The internet was just starting to take off. There was this sense of, you know, um, we've got it all together. The book takes place between 1997 and 1998, which is exactly when the Monica Lewinsky scandal happened here in the US. And now that seems so quaint, you know, that this was the big scandal was that the, you know, the president maybe had an affair, a consensual affair with this, you know, of age adult intern. So I wanted to kind of step us back from our present moment, just a little bit to a place where we could have a little bit of of perspective on where we were then, so we can compare that to where we are now.
0: A theme of the book is motherhood, both literal and metaphorical. So both Mia and um, Eleanor have children, but then Pearl ends up spending a lot of time with the Richardsons and, and Izzy becomes a sort of almost adoptee of Mia. She spends a lot of time with her. And central to the story is this Case of a Chinese American baby who's going through like an adoption court case. Was that case based on anything real?
1: It wasn't based on any specific case, but um, it kind of grew out of my wanting to explore that question of who your mother is. You know, is it the person who raises you, intends to you, or is it the person who literally gave birth to you or something in between, you know, and is it the same for everyone? That idea of the biological mother versus the chosen mother is really fascinating to me because I think a lot of people, you know, have their sort of chosen family and their chosen mothers, and it isn't always their biological family. So I did look at two particular historical cases. One was called the Baby M case, which was in the early 80s here in the U.S., in which a woman agreed to be what they now call a traditional surrogate, meaning it was her egg. um, She was artificially inseminated with a man's sperm. And then she had agreed to have the baby for this other couple and then give it to the other parents for adoption. And after she had the baby, she changed her mind and she decided that she wanted to keep this child that was, you know, biologically her child, and actually kidnapped the baby back. And there's this huge uh, contested case in which basically they tried to figure out who the parents of this baby were. Um, You know, did she get to be the parent because it was her egg and she had entered into this custody agreement, but she'd given up the right. And the upshot of it basically was that the state of New York and the state of New Jersey, which is where the case actually happened and a lot of other states, outlawed Surrogacy agreements. So actually, even now, this is still the case. You're not allowed to hire a surrogate to carry a child for you. And that now, you know, in our Current era has a lot of different implications because there are, for example, same-sex couples or infertile couples who would like to hire a surrogate, and because they can't do it in their state, they are hiring surrogates from India or from China to carry their children for them. Which, as you can see, makes the situation even infinitely more complicated. So that was one of the cases. The other case that I looked at was called the Baby Jessica case, which I think was in the the early 90s. It focused on a uh, there was a single mother who was uh, not very well off, and she gave her baby up for adoption. Baby was adopted by an affluent couple elsewhere. And then the biological father came back into the picture and wanted to get the baby back. And in that case, the court actually decided that the biological parents still had the rights to the child, and they gave the child back to the biological parents. And one of the things that I found fascinating was that at that time, public opinion was almost unanimously on the side of the adoptive parents. The affluent parents who had adopted this baby were really seen as everyone thought, you know, that was clearly the best place for the child. And it was kind of amazing how unanimous public opinion was and how I think there's been something of a shift now where we tend to... Um, prioritize the biological parents' claims, and that just reminds me that these are cultural shifts that we see. You know, there's a there's a huge cultural component to who we think is the parent.
0: The McCullochs, the the couple that have adopted Nailing the baby, I think very cleverly you make them sympathetic. You give her history; she's spent. Years trying to conceive and not been able to. You know, obviously, more superficially, they're wealthy. Clearly, they can give Nailing, you know, a a good life. But also, they've had her for a year, you know, so they've already put considerable emotional and, you know, financial investment into taking care of the child. And as I said, you paint them sympathetically. So, I mean, I wonder if you expect. I mean, first of all, were you ever torn? But also, (laughs) I mean, do you expect people to read the book and not necessarily fall down on the right side i was gonna say i mean for me it's it, it's sort of obvious from the word go that bb is the, is the rightful mother of the child but i mean people might pick up this book and read it and come down on the other side
1: yeah and you know it's it's been surprising to me that a number of people have and that you know the readers of this book who who you know email me or they reach out to me on twitter or whatever that they do feel quite split. You know, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily 50-50 split, but, you know, people seem torn, which uh, this will make me sound quite mean, but that's kind of what I wanted. At the beginning, when I started writing the book, I gave pages of it to my writing group, and there wasn't very much about the McCullough's in it. You know, this is still sort of in the early days. And um, they read the pages and they said, you know, it feels like the book is asking us to sympathize with Bibi, the biological mother. And they said, you know, think about if that's what you want. And I thought about it a little bit and I said, you know, that's actually a really good point because what that says to me then is that I haven't I haven't shown the McCullough side. I didn't want it to be an easy decision for the reader, you know, whichever side you land on. And so, as you said, the McCulloughs, you know, have had this baby since she was a few months old. So they've had her for a year. You know, they've been the ones who have been up with her at night. They've been feeding her. They've been taking care of her. She is, in a lot of ways, their child. You know, they have been... They've been treating her like their child and they've been thinking of her as their child. And then you've also got this mother who's been trying to get her back. One of the things that, that makes me the happiest as an author is when people come and they say, you know, I'm really, really torn. And I, I think I, I fall on this side, but every so often I, I feel the other way. Um, What I really wanted to do, I think, was to show just how complicated situations like this can be and how fraught these questions that we ask about who's, you know, who deserves to have the baby or you know who's going to be better for the baby are so hard to answer maybe impossible to answer
0: just one more thing from me then and if you would i'll get you to read a bit as we we mentioned at the very beginning of the show everything i never told you was a phenomenal success after we talked about it at the end i asked you what was next and you mentioned the sort of bare bones of, of this story it was just coming together what was it like then to put this book together under that colossal shadow of that massive success (laughs)
1: um well it, it was a little bit daunting in that you know i think if you've got a book that a lot of people connect with you kind of don't want to disappoint them do you know what i mean like you know um there was a lot of expectation and uh By nature, I'm sort of a people pleaser. And of course, I want people to like what I've done. And at the same time, I wanted to write a a new book and a different book. And, you know, there's, I worried that maybe this book would not live up to their expectations. Maybe it would be too different. Maybe it would be too similar, right? I think it's the problem of doing anything for the second time is that you've now got a comparison point. The nice thing about it, though, was that I feel like the the reader response to Everything I Never Told You was so warm that in a lot of ways it felt really encouraging and really sort of um, like I had readers in my corner cheering me on. I think one of the hardest things about writing a book is worrying that nobody is ever going to read it. You know, when I wrote Everything I Never Told You, I really had no idea if it would ever be published or if it would ever find any readers besides, you know, my my mother. And so, you know, it, it was in some ways a scary feeling, but also a really nice feeling to think that there were readers out there who were excited about what I was doing, <laughs> you know, and that hopefully some of them would, would read the book. And, um, I had a lot of time while I was on tour promoting Everything I Never Told You when I got to be thinking about the characters in Little Fires Everywhere. And I think that helped me put the book together. And hopefully I learned some things from the first book that, you know, I was able to apply in the second book. Um, all right, so I'm going to read just from the very, very opening pages of the books. So at this point, you don't really need any background information. So this is sort of page one. Everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer. How Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. All spring, the gossip had been about little Mirabel McCullough, or, depending on which side you were on, Mei Ling Chow. And now, at last, there was something new and sensational to discuss. A little afternoon on that Saturday in May, the shoppers pushing their grocery carts in Heinen's heard the fire engines wail to life and careen away toward the duck pond. By a quarter after twelve, there were four of them parked in a haphazard red line along Parkland Drive, where all six bedrooms of the Richardson house were ablaze, and everyone within a half mile could see the smoke rising over the trees like a dense black thundercloud. Later, people would say that the signs had been there all along, that Izzy was a little lunatic, that there had always been something off about the Richardson family, that as soon as they heard the sirens that morning, they knew something terrible had happened. By then, of course, Izzy would be long gone leaving no one to defend her, and people could, and did, say whatever they liked. At the moment the fire trucks arrived, though, and for quite a while afterward, no one knew what was happening. Neighbors clustered as close to the makeshift barrier as they could and watched the firefighters unreel their hoses with the grim faces of men who recognized a hopeless cause. Across the street, the geese at the pond ducked their heads underwater for weeds, wholly unruffled by the commotion.
0: So I've been talking to Celeste Ng. We've been talking about her latest book, Little Fires Everywhere, which is out now in the UK from Little Brown Books. Celeste, thank you so much for coming on and sharing it with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm Andy Miller and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
0: Susie Boyd is an author of five acclaimed novels, including The Small Hours and a memoir, My Judy Garland Life, which was shortlisted for the Penn Ackerley Prize in 2010. Susie's sixth novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Love and Fame. Susie, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. How would you describe Love and Fame?
2: One thing I've noticed since it's come out is there's a lot of different books in there and some people say it's sort of light-hearted romantic and other people say it's so sad it should come with a free packet of sweets and other people think it's incredibly funny and some (laughs) people don't like it and I suppose um, right from the beginning I wanted I don't know that I necessarily decided it but it was always going to be a funny book about very sad things. Um, I had been reading quite a lot of very lively American novels just before I started writing it books like We're All Completely Beside Ourselves and where do you go, Bernadette? And I wanted it to have a very, very lively tone with tons of stuff happening on every page and lots of jokes. And, and um, I was trying to write something slightly less refined than things I'd written before, although I don't know that it's super non-refined, but I, I wanted it to be really um, sort of chirpy and what's the other word, sort of peppy, but also to go very, very, very deep into um, matters relating to grief somehow that... Not exactly to make the difficult things bearable through humour and light-heartedness, but also not so much that, but more to let a sort of love a love of language and a play of language somehow mitigate the sort of complexity of grief that I wanted to examine in the book.
0: And there's there's a number of major characters who we'll, we'll talk about in turn, but also the book really has two parallel narratives that sort of meet. I understand that's the first time you've chosen to do that, so why?
2: Um, well, all my earlier books have had been sort of filtered through one overarching consciousness and I just wanted to try and not do that one time it's hard because when I was doing after I decided that it felt not exactly cliched but I didn't want to be doing something that felt really sort of booky in a sort of not exactly a crass way but just in a I didn't want it to feel at all like a device but I I I like the idea of people on different sides of London who slightly knew each other going through difficult things in very, very different ways and at different stages on their journeys and that sort of thing.
0: So I guess our main protagonist is Eve. Tell us about Eve. Who is she?
2: Um, I wanted to have a heroine who was pretty impossible but a bit irresistible as well. And she is, when we meet her, she's 26 and she's got a sort of brilliant career behind her in that she went to drama school and really shone there and got a big part in a play in w- in the West End pretty well on emerging from drama school and it was just sort of too much for her the level of stage fright and sort of unpreparedness she had for the part just undid her so she's had this kind of um, quite spectacular and public failure and she's sort of getting back on her feet and quite soon after that she gets married and so there's a sense that she's solving one problem with another problem and that, that although the person she's married happens to be pretty nice and very, very sympathetic, some some say too sympathetic, that the the marriage has quite a lot of odds set against it from the start, although it also has a certain amount of promise, so you're it, it has a kind of um, uncertain quality to it, the marriage that you're you're sort of guided through. I wanted to write a book about the first year of a marriage and, and traditionally people say the first year of marriage is the worst but everyone I know who's ever said that has ended up getting divorced in the second year so I don't know whether that's just something that people uh, who've chosen the wrong person say. So I've got this sort of highly strung character. Um, she's very self-aware so she's humorous and sort of witty and knowing about highly strung people of whom she only hopes to be at the high end of average rather than quite at the top rank which she may be. So it's a a sort of, she rolls her eyes at herself quite a lot whilst feeling these feelings and um, she's also the daughter of a famous actor who's himself the son of an actress so she has got a sense that she's joined the family business and she's messed up big time and brought a lot of distress to her, particularly to her father and I think if you were cast in a big play in the West End and messed up, it would be really, really hard to get a second chance because people would, would have gone all out for you and you it would be pretty hard to come back after that and sort of everyone around her knows that.
0: In My Judy Garland Life, you wrote about a sort of obsession with celebrity but also your lifelong want yourself to somehow be involved in the theatre in some sort of capacity. Yeah. And I started off reading Eve wondering if that was somehow... You live in vicariously through her, but of course, then cruelly, because she has this basically massive failure.
2: Well, you mean like I couldn't even give it to myself <laughs> in my book? <laughs> well, I suppose um, through writing the Judy Garland book, I mean, hold the front page, show business is about the hardest business in the universe, you know, that's no news to anyone. But I I had had some involvement in the stage. The Judy Garland book, in fact, was made into a musical at the Nottingham Playhouse. And I'm also a trustee of the Hampstead Theatre, so I'm quite involved with the life of the theatre. So I've got quite a lot of theatre in my life. I as a child I, and still now I think that the sort of theatrical life is the highest life and the noblest life and the life with the most life in it and the one that anyone would want if they were good enough kind of thing. So I am coming from that slightly insane viewpoint. But I suppose um, I also know that it's such an unforgiving life. And there's one point in the book where Eve's mother, who's sort of sensible and kind, says to her, I can't think of any other job where it's completely normal to go to work terrified every day. And and yes, perhaps you're a bomb disposal (laughs) expert. And I was thinking of that sort of terror that, that the people I know who work in show business sort of routinely have to contend with and probably don't get much sympathy for because you know as people say to Eve in the book when she's got such terrible terrible stage fright she can't eat or sleep people just say what did you expect that's just what it's like kind of thing. The
0: book begins with Eve just married to Jim. Mm. Um, They're flying off to Chicago for their honeymoon. I want to talk about Jim a little in a minute and and how he fits in but the book starts with this sort of Staccato's, panicked, like Eve imagining, like revisiting people talking to her about her getting married. I must say, talking about the theatre, just reminded me so much of um, uh, Not Getting Married, the song from Company. Are you familiar with that? Is that any influence?
2: I'm familiar with the song Marry Me a Little that I have seen Company, but I saw it a long time ago. I saw it on a sort of first date. It's probably the worst thing to see on a first date. It's all about how relationships are terrible and get out as fast as you can. So that took some recovering from. <laughs>
0: Um, not getting married is like much more sort of like aggressive and shouted and okay. just like you know, she's basically having a nervous breakdown through the course of the song because she doesn't get married and it just sort of reminded me of that sort of beat of it. But I mean, sort of...
2: it was quite risky beginning the book with um, s- the series of sort of unfinished thoughts about mm. anxiety and and every possible uh, feeling you could have. And it starts, I think, with someone saying, "This should be the greatest time in your life," which is a totally unuseful thing for anyone to say to anyone. But I think it's also a shorthand because the theme of anxiety does run through the book by having a few very concentrated, fragmentary examples of it, then I didn't have to keep on doing it all the way through. You sort of get a lot and then you don't get any for ages. But it's a bit like when you're a kid and you realise you're doing a drawing of a brick wall of a Victorian building or something and you start doing every brick and you realise that's going to take 27 hours and then you just think oh you can do two bricks here and two bricks down there and two bricks to the side and then it takes sort of you've given the impression of it and I didn't want to because anxiety is such a sort of familiar thing to anyone a little goes a long way and so it was a sort of shorthand way of um, sowing the seeds of it all the way through the book without having to keep on returning to it.
0: And so Eve marries Jim who is when she meets him in the middle of working on what is going to be, as he describes like that di- the definitive book on anxiety.
2: And when she hears that, she sort of chokes on her pizza. Yeah, I she mean, she might, he might seem the, the
0: perfect partner for her, but she's mortified by the idea.
2: Well, she has a horror that anyone could think she's his muse or she's inspired it somewhere, and she says to him, you know, when we meet new people, you've got to tell them you were starting this. But it is a sort of joke between them that, that in some corny way, they're the perfect pieces of a jigsaw to fit together, but also... She makes it very clear on the aeroplane going on their honeymoon, you know, if he was writing a biography of Wallace Simpson, they wouldn't be talking about that the whole time, or grapefruits, or they've just got to not make her being worried and him being fascinated and possibly um, enamoured of people who worry they're the sort of clue of their marriage. They've got to so it's a sort of joke between them that, that how ridiculous the situation they find themselves is.
0: I think also if he actually on the honeymoon every time he saw a grapefruit, he wouldn't be able to stop mentioning it, what he
2: well, I certainly remember that when I was writing the Judy garland book when you' when you are writing a book something with a biographical aspect, everything you see takes you to that person to a ridiculous degree the The things that you would think are coincidences, no one else in the world would think bore any connection whatsoever and. came to a head with the Judy book I was walking down Oxford Street with my 10 year old at that time and she said look at that man over there mum do you think he's got a look of a young Mickey Rooney and I just thought what have I done to my poor family. (laughs) Tell us something
0: about John and Jean as well Eve's parents uh, because something that happens to John is a catalyst for what happened to the rest of the book but tell us again who they are first of all.
2: Well John is a pretty famous actor sort of household name who's got particularly famous in the last 6 or 7 years through being in a sitcom called The Last Orders where he plays a pub landlord a sort of foolish pub landlord that people take advantage of. I was thinking a little bit of the characters of Coach and Woody from Cheers although it's very English the sitcom. Someone who's always going the extra mile for people and then getting a bit um mashed up themselves or he's quite a sort of romantic character and and is has a romantic view of alcohol, that it's sort of one of the best things in life. He, we know that he's had quite a lot, quite a lot of difficulties in his life, John, and he's married to Jean, who used to be a social worker, and I sort of envisage as a sort of professional life, one of those women that we all wish we had behind us, sort of making every, soothing everything, making everything easy, taking anything difficult out of our lives before we might see it. Um, she's very kind and clever, and it's not giving away too much to say that at the end of the first chapter John dies and a lot of the book is about both the public and the private aspects of grief. I wanted this book to give as much attention to the feelings that we express as the feelings that we hide so there's a lot of hidden feelings and um, routines being adopted in order to avoid um, the sort of painful realities of life and that's the sort of theme that ticks through the book, if a theme can
0: tick. Um, so let's talk about what happens then. So Eve, basically, she gets, she's on honeymoon, she, her father dies unexpectedly. She basically unravels somewhat to begin with. There's this idea that she says about when you get married, you have to replace a father with a husband. You can't have both.
2: Well, she says that she knew it was going to be difficult to have both, but she didn't realise it was either or. And I think that... Um, I think particularly because it's a child, it's a family with only one child. She was really, she's really adored by her family. And she says she's like their weather, their politics, their news. They're sort of completely obsessed with her. And, um, you know, reasonably healthy family within that. But she obviously is very, very close to her father. And I think it's quite a thing for a father when his adored daughter gets married. I've, I've experienced this quite recently. A friend, when she got married, Her father stood up to give a speech, and he just loves her so much. It wasn't possible he could just say, "Oh, you know, now we've got to, you know, say sort of sensible, slightly banal, slightly funny things." He just—it meant much, much, much more than that. And he just stood up and told three incredibly filthy jokes, and everyone was just mortified, and then sat down again. And people just sort of clapped and just thought, "Oh my god!" And then, and then it was over, kind of thing. But I think if you if you have got a super close relationship to your daughter and then she goes off to be with someone else you know that is a big thing to handle isn't it and and I think she knew it was going to be an adjustment and also I think she felt she could imagine the marriage working if she had a cup of tea with her dad every Saturday morning or he was going to sort of be part of her life and she says that she was going to ask for that for a wedding present a standing order that they might you know have breakfast or tea every weekend and that and the idea of a life and a marriage where that wasn't going to be possible seems really unthinkable to her and well before we
0: talk about Jean and how she deals with it because then we can bring in the other the other parallel story because that's how those people get involved the novel is also looking into the idea that when a public figure dies their family who obviously you know are going to go through the grieving process like anybody else does also somehow loses part of the ownership of of that person would that be right?
2: I think so and even now if you hear someone on television has died you know 4 days later there's going to be something really horrible about them in the paper and in fact it's probably more like 2 days now and so they're living with that fear and i think that i mean the good thing about everyone knowing is that you don't have to tell anyone and it's really hard telling people when you've lost someone so that's the good thing but the bad thing is particularly with a famous person people really overclaim how much they knew them their how familiar they were with that person and and Yes, I think I think the sort of claims coming from other people is a difficult thing for for Eve. I mean, she does take some comfort. She spends quite a lot of time hanging out with him on the internet and looks at, because he was an actor since when he was a child, she looks at pictures of him in plays when he was a little boy. He used to often play the sensitive son of sort of, famous actresses in the West End so he's got and the thing of spending time with him when he was a child that's not something that we get to do with our parents and she does find that comforting although she you know there's a possibility it's keeping a scar open as well but um, there's a moment when she's doing that and she sort of has the feeling how weird it is that she's older than him and how does that even work and you know so so there's advantages and disadvantages within that.
0: Yeah, listen to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Susie Boyts, and we're talking about her latest novel, which is Love and Fame. And Susie, I said before we broke that I wanted to talk about how Jean deals with John's death. But to do that, let's perhaps introduce Rebecca and Beatrice or Twigs and Beach. Um, the two other characters. Tell us who they are, first of all.
2: Well they're two sisters who live um rather like people in a sitcom side by side in two little flats and they lost their mother when they were children, I think when one of them was six and the other one was eight or nine. And Beach has pretty well brought up Rebecca. They have a joke between them that Beach is the sort of nice, kind one. She she actually works as a grief counsellor with children. She's sort of built her life around trying to help people and possibly even trying to help her sister. And Rebecca is a sort of quite glamorous and quite mean tabloid journalist. And... Um, I'm interested in that thing in families where you have one child who's the pretty one, one child who's the clever one, one child who's the great traveller, one child who, you know, which is should be on page one of how not to bring up children to tell them that they have these roles. But I suppose they acknowledge between them that one of them's exciting and a bit mean and one of them's kind and um, maybe a bit more sort of sluggish or something like that. and there's an acknowledgement between them also that they're too close that they're in each other's pockets the whole time the chapter in which they're introduced Rebecca has phoned Beach in the middle of the night sort of moaning about her day and Beach ends up coming over and then they go through on a walk through London just sort of feeling probably having conversations they've had many many times before that um, Beach doesn't think Rebecca's job is very respectable that she's not exactly doing the dirty on people but that it is a little bit beneath her and Rebecca thinks she's a snob for thinking that and Beach's anxiety is that Rebecca's trivialising herself by um, taking on things slagging off celebrities and that kind of thing and and you know, Rebecca thinks she's sort of doing her best and, and so they're, it says early on that they're both each other's favourite people and that's true for the whole book even when there are some betrayals later on but I think that's always going to be the case and so they're just a a two-person family sort of the two of them against the world or or that's so there is a sort of romance to their sisterhood as well um and a big contrast to eve being a single child and having parents who are sort of obsessed with her
0: so rebecca is wants to write a story on on john swift basically after his death she wants to do that sort of like digging out some sort of and that leads her into contact with Jean, and they form a, a sort of relationship as well don't they
2: Yeah, Jean's a um, sort of old-school kind person and teaches cooking to teenage single mums, I think, once a fortnight in her house, so we see her doing that. And one day when Rebecca goes to sort of scout out the house and sort of talk to neighbours and stuff, um, some girls are going in with their children and she ends up helping someone and suddenly, without really intending to sort of infiltrate the house in this pretty risky way, finds herself in the middle of the kitchen with the family. And... um, uh, learns to cook um, but that isn't really the way that she, it's hard to say this without sort of giving anything away so she gets to know Jean anyway and, and Jean generally is pretty admirable, She's. it says that she's kept the household very sort of calm and sane always and she's um, even at her husband's funeral she, she she thinks to herself come on you're sensible you're not a crying person and, and yet she is very strong within it so she's, she's got a big battle between the public and the private herself and is carrying secrets that are later revealed which explain a bit why she is struggling and I'm very interested in the routines people develop in during hard times and Jean later on in the book has a thing of starting the day twice, having a nap in the middle of the day and then getting up again and having two breakfasts and you feel that Eve thinks, God, one day on its own is bad enough, why would you get two days out of every one? But she's sort of trying to be, I suppose, trying to be creative about, as none of us really have any set rituals for morning anymore, Jean's trying to be creative about how to sort of make new routines that might make it a bit more doable Or um, and so she does get up and have. she's always making boiled eggs to much to... Eve's dismay and she's sort of obviously having had one bad day she goes to bed and thinks I'll get up and give it a second chance kind of thing and I was thinking a little bit of that Anne Tyler book The Accidental Tourist where the man decides to shower in all his clothes and then in order that he washes himself and his clothes at the same time and at first you think what a brilliant idea and then you just think no he's on the edge of having a breakdown so I sort of I'm interested in those kind of rituals and routines around grief and quite a lot of those are explored through the character of Jean.
0: You mentioned at at the beginning that you know the book is also funny we're talking about grief we're talking about death here and the book is very funny on those subjects but I was most struck by how well you write about grief and and it's 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 sort of very moving and and I wondered how much of yourself was in that you lost your mother not that long ago also of course you know your father was a colossal public figure as well so Mm. it's sort of some of the reflection on what we were talking about there about the death of a public figure how how much of you have you put into the book
2: it's definitely got my voice and, and my way of looking at things. I mean, there aren't really... The events don't match in any way. No, and the,
0: and the family situation is also different. Yeah, but and I, I
2: have had a lot of grief in my life, and I, I had a huge bereavement when I was 20, which was is very young, because people of 20... Don't really understand it. So
0: did you worked as a grievance grievance counsellor. Yourself. I
2: did I, uh, grievance grievance counsellor. A counsellor. <laughs> <laughs> you worked as a grief
0: We do that again. No,
2: funny a <laughs> That's a, a good a job, career. though. I'm, I'm no, to do really, that you'd never be able to work as a grievance counsellor. <laughs> you also yeah.
0: worked as a grief counsellor as well. Yes,
2: I did work for cruise. I volunteered as for cruise for about ten years. So I feel that we've gone a bit mad with grief, in that nobody really feels they're allowed to feel it. People lose you know the person they loved most and then think they should be back at work two days later or the whole world's going to fall apart and I do have this feeling that there's a sort of epidemic of unspent grief and that I think there's such a horror of not being productive you know the typical advice when you lose someone is you must keep busy you must keep busy and I think that's it's really bad advice one because anything you try and do after a big bereavement you will do completely wrong and either have to do again or have to you know, rectify the mistakes which may have reverberations that last for years. And so I think, for me, and it's different for everyone, that what works best is to take as much time as you can quietly to yourself and holding the the lost person close to your heart in your mind, as you would if you had a new baby. Work out how you can be a new kind of family without the missing person. And I think that if you're able to spend... A few weeks doing that, which I understand not everyone is, but I think most people can more than they think they can. I think that that makes a huge difference, and I think we also have to teach the world how we want them to treat us. and And I really understand things like in Victorian times, people having a black armband, and then people would just, or so I like to imagine, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt for a, quite a few months, not tell you off when you've messed up, or not contradict you when you mispronounce the name of a French composer or things that just... I mean, that's the thing about grieving. Ordinary things seem difficult, and difficult things are just impossible. And the way that grief assaults your personality so that the things you're normally good at, you often can't do at all. Your ordinary reactions to things can become very unreliable because grief often produces paranoia if the world has shown you that the worst possible thing can happen... Why would you not think it was going to happen the whole time? So it's very useful to know that if you're feeling paranoid and someone you love has died within the last year, very likely it's to do with the grief, which I think in this age where people don't really feel entitled to grieve, I think that's useful knowledge, and I think it does protect you and provide armour for you a bit. And so I suppose if I do have some griefy agenda, it would be that the things we do to avoid feeling grief often get us into much more trouble than the grief painful as it is would be if we just allowed ourselves to feel it a little bit
0: right just one more thing from me and then i'll I'll get you to read a bit if you would this is a book about families about relationships between siblings between children and their parents husbands and wives as of course when we think about it are are most books about human beings about familiar relationships Mm -hmm. but of course if one reads reviews of your books or profiles of you one can't help but see that sort of relationship described as Freudian. Mm. Is that fair in terms of the work or is that he you sick to death of that?
2: No, I don't mind. I do believe that psychoanalysis is an unrivalled method for understanding human behaviour. So, you know, if I didn't think that maybe maybe it would would annoy me more. Um, I have always looked at the world in that way and when I'm creating a character I often think of, you know, many not just the parents and grandparents, but what happened before then and just I've always seen the world in that way, I've always seen literary characters in that way. So I don't I don't have a problem. Sometimes if people say my descriptions are painterly, I thought, Oh cough, but if, sorry if I'm not allowed to say that. But I so that that sometimes annoys me. But it doesn't really annoy me. I mean you know, I'm always glad if people are talking about my books and I feel that what I'm really, really interested in is the sort of huge landscape of human feeling, everything that exists within it and I'm also um, interested in the definition of human nature and those things, are, of course, are going to carry with them psychoanalytic ideas and all sorts of other ideas but that's that's what I'm really interested in and, and I do have a sort of belief that however painful they may be the feelings we have are probably the best things about us they're the best things in life and they, they're what makes life lively and so I suppose that also feeds into it as well. If I would get you to... Um... I'm going to read a little bit from the first chapter of Love and Fame. Eve was packing for her honeymoon, alone in the flat, laying out the ice-blue nightgown that the shop assistant said would make her look like a goddess. She folded the bodice, smoothing down the gathers, taking care not to crease the springy lace, tucking it in like a child. Christ, what was an O'Donnell silk-satin bra and brief-set in the face of all this? What was a husband-to-be with an appraising smile and that look in his eye? Was that too sicko territory? could your body exist outside the body of the world could you carve out a corner where romance was possible in the face of all this in the face of the groin of all this at the last minute she ditched venice surprising anyone a place that led with love was not to be trusted and how could you feel anything in venice that hadn't been felt before Venice, where every afternoon you could break your neck, tricking over men on bridges, popping the question in scuffed brown brogues on bended knee, while obliging gondoliers caught the whole thing on someone's phone to be sent as an e-attachment with the the save-the-dates. Venice, where there was nothing to do in the face of the curdling love industry and all those malcontent churches and shops that bore down on you, relentless with tat menacing black-and-gold eye masks pig-ugly beads hideous artisanal tooled leather phone covers nightmarish puppets with craven expression but croon at the top of your voice just one cornetto the place was evil with atmosphere rotting with romance venice suddenly seemed to her deadly brimming with hysterical aesthetes desiccated collectors red-handed cardinals with obscene bank balances venice was sick she couldn't help thinking clanking with skeletons and sinister institutions the putrid, drainsy odour of the Grand Canal. So, Chicago it was. It's not trying to be exquisite, full of ancient wisdom, you know. is clear about itself, it's honest, straightforward in a way. It doesn't hide its history of murders and crime, corruption, drug wars behind painty ceilings and solid gold pieces. There's something decent in that, something frank, something a bit sexy. She liked working up an argument. It doesn't, I don't know, reek. She was enjoying herself now. It's not squalid. The ideas behind America appealed to her. She hoovered up its literature, swallowed its facts down whole, the hopes of it, the energy, the scale. They say when the sky is blue there, it really means it. Not like here, when it's not pretending exactly, but, I mean, they built the first skyscrapers in Chicago and they called them cloudbusters. Some of Chicago's best-loved gangsters started their careers as singing waiters. You can't argue with that. Chicago doesn't have a veneer. It's not drowning in history and all clogged up with gold leaf and palazzo dust. Suddenly there was no competition. It'll be cheaper by miles and we can make it our own. Of course, Jim said. Jim always said of course or absolutely. He was that sort of person. He had an enthusiasm for enthusiasm. His interest extended to almost everything in life. Jim was frank and easy, mild, clever, well-rounded. The ordinary wear and tear of things, the pull of the past, the fear of the future, didn't seem to get to him. They got to her.
0: So I've been talking to Susie Boyd, we've been talking about her latest novel, Love and Fame, which is out now from Virago. Susie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us.
2: Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little
0: Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
2: You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms.
0: If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that?